Today we're going to look at the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. And uh, we're also going to, after that, we're going to look at, the, there's a, a summary section. Uh, it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, which gives a summation of the miracles that he's been doing. <clears throat> and I'm going to read from Mark 1, 29 to 31, simply because Mark's account uh, is a little bit expanded over uh, Luke and Matthew. Now, as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately <coughs> the fever left her, and she served them. The sin of the reading of God's word. Matthew will say he touched her hand. Luke will add that he rebuked the fever, and it left her. <clears throat> but we'll get to that. After the amazing healing of the leper, and the great public exhibition of power, with the healing of the centurion's servant, there is the private miracle of Peter's mother-in-law. The private miracle takes place in a house. Although this... Uh, Pericope is quite small, three verses in Mark, two in Luke and Matthew. The account in Mark and Luke contains all the expected elements of a gospel hearing, healing narrative. Number one, the setting. Uh, Mark one twenty nine, Luke 4.38. Number two, the description of the illness and their quest for a healing. Luke 4.38 and Matthew's version, which is abbreviated, leaves out the request, while Mark strongly impl implies a request. Mark simply says, 130, they told him about her at once. <clears throat> and then number three, the healing, Mark 131. And uh, 32, and uh, let's see, Matthew 815, Luke 439, and then four, the result of the healing, Mark 131c, Matthew 815c, and Luke 439c. <coughs> Scholars believe that the source of the material very likely came from Peter, although three other apostles were there, Peter's brother Andrew, and of course James and John, part of the inner circle. <clears throat> we shall base our study on Mark's account which is the most detailed, and then we'll bring in other details from Matthew and Luke, not recorded by Mark. Let's look at the setting first. Mark and Luke inform us that this miracle occurred after Jesus had taught in the synagogue in Capernaum and had astonished the people by his authoritative preaching. The people were amazed at his teaching. He taught not like the Pharisees or the scribes. He taught with authority. They were dry intellectuals who followed human traditions and not Christ. <clears throat> After the service ended, Jesus came to Peter's house to have some lunch. Or as in the Midwest, up in Iowa and Nebraska, they would say to have dinner. What we call dinner, they call supper. The Jewish day began around 6 a.m., around sunrise, and the main Sabbath meal, according to custom, took place immediately after the Sabbath service around 12 noon, the sixth hour. They get up very early. Remember, they don't have electric lighting in 
countries without electric lighting, people tend to get up when the sun gets up. And then they go, when the sun goes down, they tend to retire. From John 1.44, we know that Peter, Andrew, his brother, and Philip came from Bethsaida, which is around five miles east of Capernaum on the northeastern tip of Galilee. So you got Galilee kind of shaped like this, and it's up here. Peter moved to Capernaum, probably, very probably, to be near Jesus' headquarters. Jesus' headquarters was in Capernaum. Some believe he moved there when he got married. Others believe he owned two properties, one in Bethsaida and another in Capernaum. Uh, commercial fishermen uh, would on occasion fish different areas during different times of the year. At this early stage, the four apostles mentioned, Simon and Andrew, as well as James and John, constituted the whole group of disciples. Okay, this is in Mark chapter 1. This is Remember, Matthew's account is set up topically. Uh, Mark and Luke follow more of a chronological orientation. But this is very early in the ministry of Jesus. You know, soon Jesus would not be able to teach in the synagogues because anything to, anybody to have anything to do with Jesus would be excommunicated. So this is very early. Others will be named in Mark 2.14 of the apostles. Uh, Levi, the son of Alphaeus, and then, of course, the list in 3.13-19. Following Jewish customs and economic needs, Peter's house had an extended family, including his mother-in-law, and the implication is she's a widow. If her husband was alive, she would not be living in Peter's house. It would be, you know, simply not acceptable. She would be still with her husband, so here he is taking care of a widow. His wife and Andrew, his apparently unmarried younger brother, And interestingly, there's a very ancient octagonal Christian Byzantine building on the purported location of Peter's house near the old synagogue in Capernaum. This is all discovered by archaeologists. And according to archaeologists, this location is some very solid evidence. The Byzantine structure was discovered by the Franciscans, and it was supposedly used for Christian instruction since the later part of the first century A.D., Okay, there's a lot of locations that are purported to mention places in the gospel that are just simply pure tradition. This one actually has some pretty good evidence, but that's just an interesting side fact. There are a few things about this setting or the circumstances that are interesting and noteworthy. First, we note Jesus not only heals, well, usually heals in outdoor public settings. The crowds come to him. But he also heals in private settings as the need arises. Our Lord was in full control of his divine power, and he responded to different needs as he encountered them. Although as signs and wonders, uh, signs and wonders are usually done out in the open, in public, private miracles do occur as acts of mercy. I think, for example, of Elijah raising, she, he was staying at a, widow, a house, and the lady had a young son. The son died. He raised him from the dead. That occurred privately. The fact that Christ healed in a private setting is recorded and inscripturated by the Holy Spirit, and thus still serves its proper function as a sign gift to all generations who possess the Gospels. 
So yes, it occurred in private, but everybody knows about it. <laughs> so it still is a public sign that points to Christ, even though it's done in private. Second, Jesus enjoyed the fellowship of the saints, and especially like being with his closest friends or inner circle. We see this. Peter, James, and John in particular. The Sabbath is a time for solid Christian instruction, public worship, and fellowship. Christ enjoyed the Sabbath day as a godly Jew would. The passage gives the impression that Jesus came over for food and fellowship and that the healing was rather spontaneous. Now, Peter and Andrew may have had it in their minds the whole time. Yeah, when we get home, we know she's sick. When we get home, we're going to ask Jesus to heal her. They may have known that. But it, it, it seems quite spontaneous in the account. Third, our Lord's willingness to heal on the Sabbath was contrary to Jewish tradition at that time. The Savior will have a confrontation with the Jews over the right to heal or do good on the Sabbath in Mark 3, 1 to 6. So we see that Jesus had absolutely no regard for Jewish traditions that had no basis in the scriptures. He completely ignored them and refused to obey them. For example, the hand washings. Okay, the idea that's common among Presbyterians today that if a synod makes a decision, even if that decision is unscriptural, we have to submit to it, that's completely nonsense. That's completely unbiblical. We have to disobey it. If synod said women shouldn't wear head coverings, well, we have to disobey it because Paul disagrees. And then fourth, the synoptic gospels make it perfectly clear that Peter was married when he was called by Jesus, and he remained married. <clears throat> the Roman Catholic exaltation of celibacy <clears throat> and their forbidding of marriage for the clergy is Neoplatonic in origin and radically unscriptural. Even recently, I remember uh, Pope John Paul in a sermon uh, said that uh, even lusting after your wife was sinful. That's, that's Platonism. There's lawful desires and unlawful desires. Desiring your wife is lawful. Desiring somebody who's not your wife is unlawful. And of course, the Roman Catholic position leads to sexual immorality and all sorts of perversions, such as homosexuality and the molestation of children. For the gift of celibacy is exceptionally rare. Paul says that the solution to unlawful lust and fornication is heterosexual monogamous marriage, 1 Corinthians 7, 2-4, and 9. Hey, if you're burning with lust, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, get yourself a wife. If you're a man, get a wife. If you're a woman, get a husband. And then don't deny each other, except for prayer and fasting, and it's a mutual agreement. The solution, it's a put-off, put-on principle. Put-off unbiblical behavior, put-on biblical behavior. Sex is fine. The marriage bed is undefiled, says in Hebrews. But that's only heterosexual marriage between a man, one man and one woman. It doesn't include being a transvestite or a sodomite or a lesbian or a goat lover or a tree hugger. Paul says, excuse me, the idea that our Lord would call a married man and then expect him to abandon his wife for the ministry is wicked and contrary to scripture. Now, I think Roman Catholic tradition is that she died right away and then he just was a widow. Uh, I think that's more likely for Paul. I think Paul was probably a widow or his wife divorced him when he became a Christian. Paul says explicitly that the man who does not take care of his family is worse than an infidel. 1 Timothy 
For this reason, Peter moved with his wife to Capernaum so that he could follow Jesus and fulfill his biblical responsibilities with his wife. And then we know as a fact that the Roman Catholic position is absolutely wrong for many, many years later. <clears throat> as Peter is faithfully fulfilling his calling as an apostle, he was still taking along his wife, as were all the other apostles except for Paul. And that's 1 Corinthians 9.5. So many, many years later, Peter not only is still married, but in his journeys as an apostle, he's taken his wife with him. Now, why would he do that? Well, a man has needs, and a woman has needs, and it's not proper to leave your wife behind and go out on the road for two years. Peter and Simon may have left their nets behind to follow Jesus and be supported by church tithes, although we still read that of them going out fishing occasionally. But they did not leave their homes and extended family responsibilities behind. Scripture cannot contradict Scripture. Peter, the older brother, had a moral or biblical responsibility to care for his widowed mother-in-law. And he did so. The Romanist requirement of a celibate clergy is another example of the Papal Church placing human traditions above the clear teaching of Scripture. Paul writing to Timothy says, A bishop or overseer, that's an elder or presbyter, must be the husband of one wife who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. 1 Timothy 3, 2 and 4, and also Titus 1, 6. So he obviously can't be a sodomite, obviously can't be a woman. He, he can't practice polygamy and be an elder or a preacher. He's got to have one wife, and he can't be unlawfully divorced and have a second wife. Now, if he's lawfully divorced, if his wife left him or committed adultery, that's another matter. <clears throat> by the way, the celibacy of the priesthood was decreed by Pope Gregory the Great, um, Pope Gregory the Seventh Hildebrand in A.D. 1079. Now it goes back; it goes way back to the fifth century, but it wasn't made a requirement until the eleventh century. And um, when I was when I lived in the Bay Area, uh, when I was first a Christian, I knew <coughs> I worked at the welfare office. This is in the 1970s. And there were a ton of sodomites there, and a lot of them were Roman Catholics, and they actually attended Mass. And uh, one of them had a boyfriend at the Roman Catholic Seminary, and he said over, he said, half of the men in the seminary are all sodomites. And these are going to become priests, and they're a bunch of sodomites. And you say, well, that's shocking, that's perverse. Well, that's marriage, if you don't follow what God says is the remedy for lust, then you're going to get yourself in all kinds of trouble. <clears throat> now, of course, in the liberal Protestant denominations, they have sodomite ministers and lesbian ministers, which is an abomination in God's sight. It's absolutely an abomination. Fifth, Peter's mother was suffering with a fever to the point where she was bedridden. The Talmud referred to such a strong fever as a burning fever. Many times our Lord healed incurable diseases and birth defects, but here he heals a curable disease. He does not want Peter's mother-in-law to suffer. 
uh, when I was in seminary, we had a guy from Nigeria. <clears throat> and right before he came over on the plane, he got bit by a mosquito and he had malaria. And uh, you've never seen a fever until you've seen a fever from a, a hard case of malaria. When you opened the door and walked in his room, you could feel the heat coming off his body. And he was drenched in sweat. And there's a lot of swampy areas uh, around Capernaum. Well, around the, anywhere where the Jordan goes into the Galilee anyway. And there were mosquitoes and people could get malaria and other problems. Here's what Dr. Thompson says. Quote, as there is a considerable marshy land around this Tabiga, may not this account for the prevalence of the fevers at Capernaum? For here it was, of course, that Peter's wife's mother lay sick of a fever. Fevers of a very, of a very malignant type are still prevalent, particularly in summer and autumn owing, no doubt, to the extreme heat acting on those marshy plains such as Buetha at the influx of the Jordan River. End of quote. And then we come to the request. So those, those are the circumstances. Let's look at the request. In Mark's account, as soon as Jesus and the disciples reached Peter's house, they told him about her at once, 130b. The implication is that when our Lord would see her suffering, he would have compassion on her. So, you know, you don't even have to say, please heal her. Although, in another account, they do make a request, but just the fact that they point it out would be enough. Luke's account notes that, quote, they made request of her concerning her, verse uh, uh, 438c. And then Mark indicates that the disciples brought her to Christ's attention at once. While Luke makes it clear that they asked Jesus to heal her, Peter and Andrew interceded on behalf of Simon's mother-in-law. She may have been too ill to ask on behalf of herself. Of course, she's, in a room, she's laying there totally sick. Jesus loved Peter and would not be indifferent to the suffering of his mother-in-law. Now, what are some implications of this? Well, obviously, first of all, being a Christian does not exempt one from disease and sickness. Okay, this idea taught by the faith healers that if you have enough faith, you're never going to get sick. Kenneth Hagin taught that. Kenneth Copeland taught that. Uh, Joyce Myers and all these people teach this. Of course, it's a completely false, and of course, all these people get sick. <clears throat> In God's providence, many godly saints have become ill. Job, Job 2.7, Elijah, 2 Kings 13.14, Hezekiah, 2 Kings 20, verse 1, Dorcas, Acts 9, 36 and 37, Paul, Galatians 4, 13, Ephroditus, Philippians 2, 25 to 27, Timothy, 1 Timothy 5, 23, he had stomach problems, take some, take, drink a little wine, it's not grape juice, wine for your stomach, and Trophimus, 2 Timothy 4, 20. Many solid believers have become very sick, even unto death. The prosperity word of faith movement that says, if you have enough faith, you're never going to get sick is obviously contrary to Scripture. I mean, how ignorant can you be? There's so many godly saints that have been sick. To, to say that is just simply ridiculous. What, Paul didn't have enough faith? Timothy didn't have enough faith? They based their error on the misinterpretation of the passage in Isaiah, by his stripes we are healed. Uh, 53.5d. While we can rest assured that Jesus achieved a perfect redemption by a sacrificial death on the cross of resurrection, 
His atoning suffering and death does not exempt believers from physical infirmities or physical death. Our bodies are not perfected and made immortal and glorified until the second coming of Christ at the final resurrection. So your salvation technically is not complete until the second coming. Yes, your soul is saved. When you die, you go to heaven. You're with Christ and the saints in heaven and the angels, beholding the face of God. But your body's still there in the grave, rotting away. Yes, Christ died and he saves soul. He saves your soul. He saves your body. He saves your mind. He saves your, your body. You're going to receive a glorified body. And that's taught very clearly in 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 54. Well, let's look now at the healing. The gospel accounts of her healing are vivid and touching. Mark's account says he came and took hold of her hand and raised her up, 131a. Matthew's abbreviated account says he touched her hand, 815a. Luke, the physician, gives us the most dramatic narrative. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, 439a. And the word stood over literally means that he came to her side. All the accounts emphasize that the healing was immediate and the healing was complete. And once again, think of somebody with malaria. We're not talking about the fever, a mild case of the flu. We're talking about a burning fever. You're bedridden. You can't get out of bed. I got uh, bit by a tick and I got Lyme disease back in the 90s. It was early 2000s. I got Lyme disease and I was just completely knocked out. I was completely out. I couldn't. I basically just could lay there. <clears throat> she, was a, she was on her feet and was able to cook and wait on Christ and the disciples like a mother-in-law loves to do. The word raised is the same word, by the way, used to describe our Lord and believers' resurrections. <clears throat> the rebukes of the illness, just as rebuking, he rebuked the illness just as he rebuked the wind and the waves. Matthew 8, 26, Mark 4, 39, and Luke 8, 24, shows Jesus' absolute power over creation. If there's a virus, he can command the virus. If there's a bacteria, he commands the bacteria. He commands the very elements, the atoms. All of the evangelists note that Simon's mother-in-law served them to show the completeness of the recovery. She's on her feet. And what does a good mother-in-law, old-fashioned, biblical mother-in-law do? She's cooking for them. She's serving them. She's waiting upon them. Doing what a godly mother-in-law would do. To go from a severe fever, which is accompanied by extreme fatigue and exhaustion that forces one to bed, to cooking and serving is an amazing miracle indeed. The Bible... Unlike modern pagan feminism, which is totally pagan and satanic, exalts the role of mothers and wives who take pride in their domestic duties, who love to serve Christ by doing a faithful job as helpmeets, which is what they were created to do. And things have changed so much generationally. My grandmother, who died 20 years ago at the age of 100, on my father's side, uh, you go to her house, she's, she's, making, she's preparing food for you. She's waiting upon you. She's, she's a helpmate. The modern idea that women can only be fulfilled and have real meaning in life by largely ignoring their children 
and acting like men and going out into the workforce is a lie of the devil. And it denies women what really is fulfilling. That's what's so evil about it. It's, it's one of those things where their pagan vanity, their foolishness, their wickedness, their evil worldview uh, curses themselves. It has been a disaster for women and families. And it does not lead to fulfillment, but frustration. For normal women have an innate desire to bear children and care for the household. And I, it just amazes me that women are, pagan women are so stupid they fall for this. It's more Instead of raising children, it's more fulfilling to go work in some corporation and sit at a desk in front of a computer. That's more fulfilling for you. Why? If you got hit by a car tomorrow, they simply replace you. It would be no big deal. But your children, they only have one mother. You're irreplaceable to them. By way of application, we should note that faithfully obeying God's moral law and serving Jesus as Lord is one of the best proofs that we can show forth that we have been restored to spiritual health by our Savior. And then we come to healings among the... Uh, among the crowds in the application of Isaiah 53. <clears throat> so we have these examples of healings in, in the four gospel accounts. Matthew organized a little differently than Luke and Mark. And then there's a summation. And here it is. This is Matthew 8, 16 to 18. When evening had come, this is the same day, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. When evening came, I wasn't supposed to read part of 19, but I did. When evening came, the Sabbath was over. Remember, the Sabbath is sundown to sundown. And the land could be carried. It was now lawful for Jews to walk any distance or transport the sick. Now, the law forbade the carrying of any burden through the gates of the city on the Sabbath day, Jeremiah 17.24. Now, the law, of course, refers to economic activities and would not forbid taking someone sick and in dire need to a doctor or a hospital or to Jesus, the great healer. But we have to keep in mind the Jews followed, they were the followers of the Pharisees and the Pharisaical interpretation of the law. And they had, you, could, you can't carry a burden for any reason. And they also said you can only take this many steps on the Sabbath, and it was very short. So the Jews were following legalistic traditions. That's why they waited till the sun went down, and then all of a sudden huge crowds are coming. They're coming to Jesus. This, the crowds came, and they sought healings and exorcisms. Mark's account says that the whole city was gathered together at the door, 133. And, of course, that's Mark's use of hyperbole. That doesn't mean every single person in the whole town was at the door. Because Capernaum was a big town. 
It just means there was a big crowd outside the door. Like, you know, we find this in other places in the gospel. Uh, all Israel came out to John the Baptist to be baptized. Well, not everybody did. The Pharisees didn't. Jesus had become the talk of the whole town. His ability to heal at a word or a touch had made him into a super popular healer because he actually had the ability to heal or cast out demons. There were people who purported to be able to cast out, to do exorcisms back then, who had some sort of incantations and mumble jumble, but they didn't have any power. Jesus had real power. At this point, all the synoptic gospels take the opportunity to summarize our Lord's healing ministry. This general description, still placed in Capernaum on the beginning of the first day of the week, is designed to tell us that all the miracles described in the Gospels are only examples of what took place on a much broader scale. Remember, the Gospels are summaries. If everything Jesus did in the three and a half years of his ministry was described, it'd be, you know, 38 volumes or something, or 65 volumes. Matthew's narrative notes that many miracles are a fulfillment, uh, that the many miracles are a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 4. <clears throat> the sign gives pointers to the person and work of Christ. He is the suffering servant, who by his vicarious suffering unto death bears the sin and guilt of his people. And the miracles note, noted are divided into two categories. Let's look at them. First, there are the demon-possessed. Mark 8, 16, Matthew 8, 16b. And he, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word. Now, our Lord did not go about looking for the sick or demon-possessed, but once people learned about his power, they came to him. Mark and Luke in the parallel passages say demons, demonia, and sometimes the Gospels refer to demons as evil spirits, Luke 7, 21 and 8, 2. Spirits that are wicked, that's Jesus' description in Matthew 12.45 and Luke 11.26. Unclean spirits, uh, Matthew 10.1, Mark 1.27, 3.11, 5.13, Luke 4.36 and 6.18. Or simply spirit or spirits, uh, Matthew 8.16, Luke 10.20, with a context indicating that the spirits are evil or wicked. The term unclean spirits and demons or demoniacs are used interchangeably, and that's, uh, for example, Luke 8, 27 to 29. Now, what are demons? Well, this is pretty clear. They're fallen angels because they sinned and rebelled against God. Jude says that they are, quote, this is Jude 6, the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode. What do they do? They rejected God's command and chose to follow their own devices. They followed Satan, a.k.a. also called Belial, Beelzebub, and the great serpent, and rejecting God's will, authority, and plan. Satan said, hey, why should I be second banana? I'm going to call the shots. I'm going to determine my own rules. I'm going to have my own kingdom. I don't need God. And these are, and, you know, scholars believe it was about a third of the angels that fell. In Scripture, they are described as entering and troubling men, Acts 5.16, or overtaking a man, Mark 9.18. At other times, we read that a person possessed them, Exene, Luke 4.33. 
And therefore we speak of people being demon-possessed. The many examples in Scripture of demon possession are not describing physical maladies of the brain or nervous system, but real, literal possession by evil spirit beings. He'll read modernist commentaries and even some neo-evangelicals, and they talk, well, this person may have, maybe they had epilepsy, or they had schizophrenia, or they were hallucinating, and these, these are just simply an old Jewish way of describing things that we now know are physiological. No, that's not true at all. These are real demon possession. And if it was just a mere description of something physiological, how could you cast it out? And how, how could it speak back to Christ? Modernist attempts at explaining away the miracles in scriptures and demon possession by saying they're a primitive, ignorant way of describe the symptoms of physiological maladies is unbiblical, unbelieving nonsense. Matthew records five examples of Jesus casting out demons. 8, 28 to 34, 9, 20, 32, 4, 34, 12, 22, 15, 22 to 28, and 17, 18. Some of the prominent cases of de demon, demonic possession recorded in the Gospels are the Syrophoenician's daughter, Matthew 15, 22, Mark 7, 25, the Gergesene demoniac, in Matthew it's, there are two of them, in the other accounts, there, there's only one. Matthew 8.28, Mark 5.2, Luke 8.27. The demon-possessed madman at Capernaum, Mark 1.23 and Luke 4.33. And the blinded dumb demoniac, Matthew 12.22 and Luke 11.14. A person could be possessed by one demon or even a multitude of demons. Mark 5.9. Christ's word is significant. It's Christ's complete control over demons and his casting them out by a word is significant, for it demonstrates that the victorious new covenant expression of the kingdom is at hand. That our Lord is about to achieve a definitive total victory over Satan and his forces at the bloody cross and empty tomb. Why was this, this great amount of demonic activity in the days of Christ, in the life of Christ? They knew their time was coming to an end and that Christ was going to achieve a victory. Now, they didn't know how. They didn't know it would be the cross. They thought they were defeating him. But they knew that their end was near. After the 70 gospel preachers returned, they said to Jesus, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Luke 10, 17 to 18. And our Lord also said, Luke eleven twenty, But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus cast the demons out with a divine power, a divine coercion. He ordered them to leave. He told them what to do. They were completely under his control. The demons knew who he was, and they cowered in fear before him. And Luke's account reads... 441, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And he rebuked them, saying, Do, he rebuked them, did not allow them to speak, for they knew who, that he was the Christ. Now the unclean spirits confessed Christ, but not out of love, but out of fear. Our Lord abhorred the, these evil spirits. He did not want the truth about himself revealed prematurely, and he did not want malignant spirits who spread their, their lies spend their time lying, deceiving, hating, and perverting people's thinking and worldview as preachers. 
they were such propagandists and slick liars who mingled truths with falsehoods that they were unfit to confess the gospel. Mark 9, 9, which says, Now as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them, Peter, James, and John, that they should tell no one the things that they had seen, that's the transfiguration, till Jesus had risen from the dead, indicates that in his state of humiliation, our Lord did not want to provoke a carnal, earthly, erroneous concept of the messianic, of messianic enthusiasm among the people. For generally speaking, the Jews' theology regarding the messianic kingdom at that time was worldly and totally contrary to the truth. They were looking for uh, somebody like Caesar. They were looking for a military conqueror who would kick out the Romans and crush the Persians and crush the Egyptians and crush the Romans and take, take over. And that's not, it's not a carnal kingdom, it's a spiritual kingdom. The general description of Jesus healing the sick who came to him in the Gospels emphasizes that he healed all, ponta, that were sick, Matthew 8.16c and C Luke 4.40a. <clears throat> there was no disease, birth defect, or affliction that Christ could not heal. He even raised the dead on certain occasions. Of course, Lazarus had been dead four days and was starting to smell. Our Lord had the anointing of the Holy Spirit beyond measure, which proved he was the Messiah, the anointed one. In addition, as the Son of God, he had power in himself to heal anyone he wanted to. And he could even command the very elements of creation. The wind and the waves on the Galilee, and of course, the, the withering of the fig tree. Our Lord's healing ministry was comprehensive and encompassed both Jews and Gentiles. For it pointed to the power and inclusiveness of his salvation. And then Matthew's account takes us to the Old Testament fulfillment. Now Matthew's writing primarily to a Jewish audience. He points out through divine inspiration that what Jesus was doing was a fulfillment of Isaiah 53 verse 4. And when he does so, he does not follow the Greek Septuagint, but the original Hebrew, which better reflects the summary of Christ's healing ministry, says this, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. It's Matthew 8, 17. Now this passage is an example of synonymous parallelism, which is as common in Hebrew poetry. This involves the second line repeating the truth stated in the first line in a slightly different manner. Consequently, the, the truth thought is emphasized and, of course, easier to remember. That's why the Psalms are full of this. It's easier to remember. The word infirmities, ashthenia, which means weakness or feebleness, literally lacking strength of body, is another way of describing the effects of diseases. Now, why does Matthew appeal to one of the great suffering servant sections of prophecy in relation to Jesus' healing ministry? What is the point that Matthew is making here? Well, what he does here is actually quite brilliant. The fulfillment of prophecy not only proves that the Savior is the prophesied Messiah, but also points to his work as the suffering servant who bears his people's sins. Vicarious atonement. He died in the place and suffered in the place of his people, and that's how their sin and guilt is removed. And he did it in his own body on the tree. Now, the very next verse in Isaiah says, listen to this. This is 53.5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. 
The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. It shifts from the healing of diseases to the spiritual healing of salvation in only one verse. Christ's healing ministry regarding physical ailments points to his healing ministry regarding our spiritual maladies. Matthew understands that Isaiah ties our Lord's ministry of healing and compassion to his spiritual saving ministry. The physical signs point us to spiritual realities. That's the point of miracles. They're to exalt the saving work of Christ, the person and work of Christ. What is implied about Jesus' ability to save and healing souls in Matthew 8 will become explicit in chapter 9. The very next chapter, when our Lord tells a paralyzed man, in verse 2, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. Now the scribes who are observing this start thinking to themselves that Christ is blaspheming. Because it's obvious, only God can forgive sins. Only God has the authority to forgive sins. Nobody else does. But Christ responds, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Arise! Take up your bed and go to your house. Matthew 9, 6. This link is found also in chapter 10, where Jesus tells his disciples in response to the Pharisees who complained that our Lord eats with tax collectors and sinners. This is verses 12 to 13. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not, and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In the post-fall world, sickness is a result of sin and serves as an excellent illustration of the guilt and pollution of sin. If a man has an incurable disease, then he knows that his situation is hopeless. No doctor can save him, and he certainly cannot save himself. The person with an incurable case of cancer is a dead man walking. And, and even today, with all of our medicine, all our technology, a person with this kind of cancer, they just simply say to him, go, be comfortable, say goodbye to your family, you're, you're done for. You're gone. You're, you're going to die. It's only a matter of time. Before he dies and, and is laid in a tomb, well, the person apart from Jesus Christ is even in a worse situation than someone with an incurable disease. He has the guilt of sin. He's polluted and depraved by sin in every aspect of his being. He's spiritually dead and under a curse or judgment of sin, even while he is physically alive. And the moment that he dies, his soul will go straight to hell. And at his final resurrection, when Christ returns, both body and soul will be cast into the lake of fire. That's what Christ said. And it's taught, of course, again in the book of Revelation. These are very sobering and very unpleasant facts. Nobody likes to think about it. Nobody wants to dwell on it. But we have to face reality. It's the truth. It's taught in the Word of God very clearly. He has a guilty record of sin and rebellion before God, and there is nothing that he can do in and of himself to remove that black record of wicked acts, thoughts, and words. There's nothing he can do. Good works won't do it. They don't erase sin. Good works do not remove sin. They don't remove past offenses. 
And because of our inner depravity, even our best deeds, our good deeds, are stained and corrupted by sin. Luke 17.10. This idea that you can merit your way to salvation, or you can cooperate with grace and earn salvation, which is taught in Romanism, and of course it's taught by Judaism and Islam, that we work our way to God. Uh, all that is simply a human invention that's satanic to the very core. He is like the man in the final stages of an incurable cancer on his deathbed. Such a man's only hope is a great miracle from God. Such a man is like that poor leper, his body completely covered with leprosy, rotting away, who came to Jesus as his only hope. He is like the blind man who cannot see or the deaf who cannot hear. Only Christ can raise up dead hearts and open spiritually deaf ears and blind eyes. As Paul says, Ephesians 2, 1, 4, and 5. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in trespasses made us alive together with Christ. The man apart from Christ may not be demon-possessed, but Scripture says he's under the bondage of Satan. The Apostle John says, he who, in, in, the, in, in the tense means habitually sins as a lifestyle, is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3.8 The people who live for self, human autonomy, and sin, John says, are children of the devil. 1 John 3.10 the non-Christian serves the devil, and he opposes God. He lives through the things and the lusts of this world that are passing away. 1 John 2, 15-17. He is a slave of evil forces, yet he is blind to his slavery. Like the political sphere where these people that are socialists and liberal democrats, they vote for policies that ruin their own lives, yet they're so blind they're, they're happy as they ruin their own lives. They do it willingly. They're slaves. His only hope is Christ, who had dominion over the demons and who crushed Satan's head at the cross. Galatians, Genesis 3.15, excuse me. And the author of Hebrews writes this, 2.14 to 15. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. If you're not a Christian, you should fear death. If you're a Christian, you don't need to fear death. Because Christ died in your place. The Savior healing of all diseased persons. His casting out of evil spirits. The demon possessed teaches us that our need, our need of Christ and his power to save. But it is not enough to simply know about Jesus and what he has done. We must believe in him. We must have faith that he has accomplished a perfect salvation. We must acknowledge our sin and guilt and admit that our case is hopeless. We cannot save ourselves or do anything to merit God's blessing or approval. In Islam and Judaism, oh, you just say you're sorry, you repent, you turn over a new leaf, and everything's fine. God just overlooks your sin. Well, who paid for your sins? There is no sacrifice in modern Judaism. They don't believe in the temple anymore. 
They don't believe in blood sacrifices, which is the center of the Old Testament religion. Same with Islam. Islam doesn't even believe Christ died on the cross. They believe Judas died on the cross and Jesus slipped away. No, Jesus died on the cross. He paid the price. He paid the penalty by his suffering, by his blood, by his death. He eliminated the penalty and guilt of sin. We must be like that poor leper who said to Jesus, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Matthew 8, 2. We must be like the centurion who knew that our Lord could heal at a distance, that Christ has the authority and power of God. We must be like those who brought the demon possessed, knowing that the Savior would defeat Satan, sin, and death at the cross. The healings teach us that Jesus is Lord and Messiah and that he has an infinite power to save. They're there to increase our faith. They're there to point to Christ. We must come to him by faith and receive his precious, undeserved, unmerited gift of salvation. He not only achieved a perfect salvation on the cross, but he rose victorious, and he now sits at the right hand of God, interceding for all those who come to him by faith. We believe in a living Savior. He rose. He's interceding for us. Now, do we deserve anything? No. But he intercedes for us because he loves us. Therefore, in Hebrews 7, 25, 24 to 25, we read this. He continues forever and has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Muhammad, he's dead. He's burning in hell. He was a murderer and a rapist and a child molester, a false prophet, a liar, who got his theology from a demon. Christ is alive. He's at the right hand of God. He's interceding for his people right now, this very moment, 24 hours a day, every minute of the day. He can save you to the uttermost if you come to him. Do you recognize that you are sick? and in need of a physician, that only Jesus can save you? Look to Christ, suffering and dying for sinners. Trust in Christ, coming out of the grave, ascending to the Father, ruling and interceding at his right hand. Believe, do not doubt. Repent of your old life of sin, vanity, and foolishness. Lay down the weapons of your warfare against God and bow the knee to Christ as Lord. Trust in his person and work and confess him before all. As Paul says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a promise. For with the heart one believes unto salvation, unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Romans 10, 9 to 10. You couldn't get any clearer than that. So what do the miracles do? They point us to Christ. They point us to Christ, his person, he has the power, he has the ability, he has the love that we need, and his work. He actually accomplished a perfect redemption. He doesn't make salvation possible, he really saves. Now, are we worthy of saving? No. Do we deserve to be saved? No. Do we merit salvation? No. But Christ loved us anyway. It's called grace, undeserved favor from God undeserved. We don't deserve it. We deserve to go to hell. But his grace, his love reached down and pulled us 
out of the pit of hell and saved us and eliminated our sin by his blood. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your son. Let us understand these miracles and their purpose. Let us focus on Christ as the great physician of souls. And let us never doubt, for he is even now alive at your right hand, interceding on our behalf. Lord, forgive our unbelief. Help our weak faith. Cause us to focus on your Son and what he has done. And look away from ourselves, for we are worms. In Jesus' name, amen.